Welcome to Why Though. We're your hosts, Tiffany Bloom and Ashley Abercrombie. We land somewhere in between Mother Teresa and Biggie Smalls, and we're just wondering, why though? We all have questions, from our existential crisis curiosities to our, hey girl, why your eyebrows look so good though? And we want to tackle all of those questions with you. Welcome back to Why Though. We hope you guys are doing okay because it has been a rough week here in America and this has been global news. So for all of our listeners around the world, we are going to talk again today about the issue of race because clearly we need to continue to talk about it. And, you know, this week with Amy Cooper, who was a woman in Central Park, and of course she is a liberal American, because that's what most people don't understand about the issue of race or the issues of supremacy, is that many people are very, very liberal, but that doesn't mean you can't be a racist. (laughs) And so the way that she called the cops and escalated her voice and made the situation way out of hand on Christian Cooper, who's an avid uh, bird watcher and an activist in New York and and a really important person that she ended up losing her job. And she lost her dog, the rescue shelter that she had adopted her dog from she has taken the dog back so she basically lost her life in a matter of a week and then of course we just lost george floyd where a police officer in uh, minnesota put his knee on the neck of this man and he died even though he was asking he was telling the officers that he couldn't breathe and there were officers standing around watching the whole thing and no one intervened even though people were recording even though people were asking them to stop they did not stop and george lloyd lost his life and so we want to talk about that today and Tiffany's gonna kind of take it here in just a second but I wanted to share with you you know just as a person who's been a ministry leader a faith leader a prison chaplain for close to 16 years now I thought it was really important just to say something that's on my heart and that is you know just this the way that the internet explodes after these things happen, I think is really important for us to pay attention to. And I think sometimes we're helping, but we're actually hurting. There's a book about that, by the way, (laughs) When Helping Hurts. Mm -hmm. And I would highly recommend that you read it if you are new to the justice space and you can really understand what it means to move beyond pity and feeling sorry and, you know, guilt into a place of compassion and empathy and action. I think that would be a a great next step. We're going to link to so many resources for you. But it's just something that's been bothering me since the, the loss of Ahmad arbory as well but i just keep thinking gosh you know um people who are caucasian and american and america are still not listening most of the reposts that i saw were from prominent white evangelical leaders they were from people who you know have just now had the courage to speak up and you know what i do i applaud that i applaud that and i thank them some of these people have millions of people who follow them it is beautiful to have an awakening to racism it is beautiful to have an awakening to to injustice and to have the courage to go against the grain of your camp and say something. And so this is not me saying that that's not a good idea. This is me saying I affirm that those those powerful first steps are needed and necessary. But what I really wanted to say is that I think we have to journey past this place of, gosh, I care about racism when it's a hashtag. And I care about racism when this prominent white evangelical pastor or leader or minister that I respect starts to speak up about it. Why has it taken so long? Why does it take a white person to move you? Why does it take a white person in the evangelical stream to move you to action, to move you to care, to move you to compassion? And, you know, I really want to challenge people. 
who are listening, who, you know, have yet to have an awakening or just at the beginning of this to find those voices that are speaking and that have been speaking, that have been doing this work of racial healing and activist work for years. Um, a beautiful friend of mine who does incredible work around the issue of um, black mothers dying in childbirth and the infant uh, mortality rate for black children. And she posted, these posts are not healing to us and they are not helping us. They are traumatic for us. And I just thought that was a really powerful picture of, yes, we want everybody to be awakened to white supremacy. Yes, we want everybody to be awakened to the fact that racism is real in our country and that we are sick to the core, that it is one of the tenets that we built this country on, racism. And that needs to be a truth and we need to let it ring and reverberate so that we can repent and change. And at the same time, we cannot jump on this bandwagon in a way that's that's hurting our brothers and sisters. And there are images that people don't want to see because that is somebody's son yeah. and that is somebody's brother and that is somebody's community stakeholder. And, and we don't have to repost the videos of a, a human being with a family who died. We do not have to repost those photos. We do not have to talk about how sad we are. You know what? We need to push past that. It's not the time for sadness. You know, it is not the time for us to go, gosh, I mean, grief and mourning and lament is one thing, but just to be sad and to post it and to move on, we're not here for that. And so Tiffany and I want to help you today move past that place of feeling like helpless of feeling sad, of feeling pity into a place where we really believe you can act, where we together can change white supremacy in this world. And I know those are strong words and we're going to talk about what they really mean because we want to help you and we don't want to offend you. But if we do, it's okay. Like we can be offended together and we can move forward together and we can change together. Okay. Because that is really important. I want to, before I move on, Ashley, I just want to touch on something you said um, that really impacted me was just the sharing of these images and the sharing of the videos and the commenting and the reposts and saying, watch this, do this, look at this. And last night I discovered a propaganda, a activist, yes. a rapper, spoken word artist. He shared on his um, Instagram that he had a friend who knew George Floyd. And he said at the outreaches, he was setting up chairs. He dragged a pool down to the hood so they could do baptisms mm. and just all this beautiful things. I'm like, let's share that. Let's celebrate yeah, this, who this man was his and his life. contribution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Instead of somehow allowing him to be defined by a white man's knee on his neck. Oh, sister, <sighs> say that. This. Um, so one of the things Ashley also mentioned is we celebrate an awakening. We celebrate an awakening yes. when uh, non-white, <laughs> excuse yes. me, when, when um, white people really do see the part they've played and how they have contributed to racism, but also yes. how they realize that they can also be an ally. And one of uh, my friends from church posted something on Facebook that I'm going to share with you now. I have her permission and it is just so mm -hmm. beautiful. And she writes this. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, it's going to take a minute. So get comfy y'all. She said, it's unsettling because I am more like Amy than I am often willing to admit. She's referring wow. to Amy Cooper. And I know that I recognize there is more to her whole person than is summed up in a news spread. There is a racism in me that is subtle and quiet, but potentially lethal. And in the face of an adrenaline and fear, warranted or unwarranted fear, what horrible choice might I make? What impulses might drive me to self-preservation over reconciliation? I know those impulses are there, but I console myself with the thought that they are handed down to me through centuries and aren't really my own impulses, but they have become mm. mine over years of quiet denial. 
I have a dream of growing a garden in my back alley. It's behind a fence, out of sight, a dead end with no foot traffic. For this reason, it's been neglected by the previous owners of our house. It's easy to let morning glory invade the soil where no one is observing its growth. But the tendrils meander through the cracks in the fence boards, and before I know it, they are strangling out the pea plants in my yard and scrambling up the apple tree. Do you know what happens when you snap off morning glory at the surface? Multiplication. The mm. heat in the alley bakes those little fragments into a multitude of new plants. But I do dream of a garden flourishing and putting forth its fruit in season. And for that reason, I'm reclaiming one little bit of ground at a time, putting my knees to the earth and searching out the source of those roots. It's going to take persistence. Mm. It's also going to take admitting I have a problem that runs deep beneath the soil. Admitting that all of me is tempted to turn on the tiller and have at it in an angry rampage or close the gate and forget there's a garden waiting to come to life. Mm. Neither response will produce fruit. I guess this is my admission that I need to behold the state of my heart, acknowledge that for years, comfort and privilege have allowed me to ignore my own sick tendency to determine my safety through values and skin tone, that I have a narrative deeply planted in my brain that I've let grow rampant in a back alley, and maybe I've been too busy looking at what's inside the margins of my fence to recognize the choking vines I've allowed to flourish just beyond my comfort. I'm ready to bloody my own knees with the work and make no man or woman a slave to my ignorance. This doesn't make me heroic. It makes me accountable. It makes Whoa! me accountable. And the bill has gone so, so many years unpaid. Can we acknowledge we have a problem? I have been part of the problem. I'm still part of the problem. My heart is the problem. <sighs> I was so moved by that. Just her honesty and saying, I am part of the problem. And I just, it's, it's, um, it's exhausting and tiring to see people like, I would never do that. That's awful. I yeah. can't believe so-and-so yeah. or what, or that doesn't happen here. And it's like, oh man, if you could just look at yourself through the lens of Christ and see where you have been blemished and offer yeah. that to him, I yeah. think we would be closer to who he intended us to be. Yes, I am so deeply moved by that. And the picture of the roots, like if you snap them off at the surface, they multiply. And I think that is such a powerful image versus rooting it out so that it doesn't exist. And that is so true of the issue of supremacy. And, you know, being a white person in America, I'm going to say some hard stuff today, but being a white person in America from birth, the tea we are steeped in is supremacy. Mm -hmm. Like it is just the tea that we're steeped in. Everything in our society systemically um, allows us to be best <clears throat> and to be first and to be um, a highest priority and to think of ourselves that way. And so the fact that she was able to identify that in such a beautiful, powerful, life-giving, hey, I'm about to change my whole life way was really wonderful. And I'm so thankful that your friend allowed us to share that because I think so many people listening can relate. And it's not, this is not the time for us to do the surface work. This is the time for us yeah. to go deep inside and go, you know what, supremacy, white supremacy in America does does not end unless it ends in me and it does not end unless it ends in uh, in other white people and it doesn't mean that other races cannot also be indoctrinated in this i hear um you know Re reverend dr Mc michael mcbride talks about this very often um because often minorities feel the pressure to be the best so that they can fit in or like you, you've heard the the language model minority whether we're yeah. talking about asian americans or a person like barack obama and so i think it's important for us to understand sure it can happen to everyone but that's only to survive in the system because every yeah. 
everybody has to find a way to survive in this. And I was looking up this morning, you know, hate groups across America. And I used to keep on top of this. And every now and then I would just go to websites, which I only recommend, I don't recommend this for everybody. This is just some some work that I personally do. Um, But I would go to websites and just see what is the the doctrine out there? Like, what are people believing? What are they reading? How are they being captured? And we used to do these um, groups in Los Angeles with the local police department, the city council, and some of the FBI agents in the county. And they would come and they would teach us about counterterrorism and the rise of hate groups in America and how digitally people are being indoctrinated and grabbed in their isolation and in their aloneness. And so they would kind of teach us and train us on this. So anyways, I kind of got back into it the last couple of days with all this going on because I'm like, Lord, how can I help root this thing out? And the Southern Poverty Law Center, we'll link to this, has a hate map. And in 2019, they tracked 940 hate groups across the United States of America. And that number is staggering. And in California alone, where I live now, there's 88 groups. So almost a fifth of them are right here in California. And California is not a state that immediately you would think to yourself, yeah, that's a blue state. You know, if you're a a hardcore right winger, you'd be like, Gavin Newsom is, you know, Satan spawn. (laughs) This is kind of the rhetoric out there. So you wouldn't expect in California to have 88 hate groups. And that is the, the difficult thing about supremacy. And I think sometimes we think about hate groups. And we're like, oh, yeah, the KKK, the alt-right, you know, these people who are chanting, you know, Jews will not replace us in Charlottesville, like these are the racist people. And these are the the people who are really, really bad. And they are the white supremacists in America. And it absolves me of my racism because I'm not like that. But we forget that these people go to school college with our kids these folks are teachers in the community these people are police officers these people tithe to churches (laughs) maybe not all of them but many of them tithe to churches they are a part of faith communities they are working in jobs where they are interfacing with people who are not white and that ideology just like those flowers that tiffany's picture painted those um the the flowers you know it sits on the surface of everything but the truth is that root is really dangerous and when we hide it it lives on and it multiplies And so it's important that we start to really root this out and we cannot absolve ourselves of racism just because we think, well, I'm not like those people, like those are the real bad ones. And so I think it's important for us to really talk about what supremacy is. And I've got a definition here. And then Tiffany found this awesome thing that she's going to share with us. Um, But white supremacy is the belief that white people are superior to those of all other races, especially the black race, and should therefore dominate society. And so that's what white supremacy means. And, you know, that can live in you in a very subtle way. It doesn't have to be as overt as, you know, um, the KKK or the alt-right or, you know, people chanting with ridiculous torches like idiots i mean it doesn't have to look like that it can really be so subtle and something that again we've been steeped in and indoctrinated in and if we are not actively fighting that then that belief that we are superior can live in us for way longer than it ever should and in god's kingdom nobody is superior (laughs) like we stand side by side at the cross (laughs) and nobody's inferior and nobody is superior like the ground is level at the foot of the cross and so we as christians better reckon with ourselves so that we can really allow the holy spirit to root this junk out 
That's so well said. And Ashley gave great examples of overt white supremacy, lynching, hate crimes, uh, neo-Nazis, the KKK, burning crosses, racist jokes, that kind of thing. But let's talk about the covert white supremacy. And I'm taking this from The Conscious Kid. They are an Instagram account um, that is a very, very helpful. I really encourage you to follow them. Mm-hmm. They will be in the show notes. And here's a few of the examples they gave. They gave, I mean, there's probably a hundred here, but I'm just going to read a few of them. Um, tokenism, denial of racism, colorblindness, white parents self-segregating neighborhoods and schools, white silence, spiritual bypassing, white savior complex, education funding from property taxes, Eurocentric curriculum, which I can't name any curriculum I had in K-12 that centered around black indigenous people of color. I, right. I can't name one. Me neither. Um, police brutality, fetishizing. Black Indigenous people of color, meritocracy, cultural appropriation, inequitable health care, denial of white privilege, all lives matter, virtuous victim narrative, bootstrap theory, which oof, we could go off on that. Um, yeah. Blaming the victim, hiring discrimination, make America great again, uh, racist mascots, mass incarceration, mm. uh, tone policing, discriminatory lending, um, exceptionalism, fearing people of color, um, celebration of Columbus Day, claiming reverse racism, um, (laughs) expecting black indigenous people of color to teach white people believing we are post-racial, saying we're all one big happy family, uh, housing discrimination, weaponized whiteness, um, even just this idea of telling, um, and this happens to me quite a bit as a speaker, but telling someone Mm. who is of color, oh, you're really articulate. Mm. You're really articulate. What do you think they mean by that? Because I really think there's some people who have said these words. Like, what does that really mean? Oh, they mean, (laughs) what they mean is you sound like me. Mm. You sound like me. Therefore, I can identify with you Mm. and I can believe what's coming out of your mouth. Mm. Uh, You have value because you sound like me. You talk Mm. like me. You communicate like me. Mm. And I, um, a few, uh, gosh, maybe... A couple days ago, I had texted Ashley an article I was reading about um, appropriation in food. I am a foodie at heart. I'm sure y'all figured that out right yes, now. I mean, we had a whole convince this girl to have an episode on pizza, <laughs> for goodness sake. But um, <laughs> I I love food. And uh, it's it's just um, can be a very discouraging thing to see how um, food has been appropriated. And one of the... Um, one of the ways that we appropriate food, I am stalling so I can find found it, um, is we, t- you know, we have different, you know, let's take turmeric, for example. Turmeric is having a moment. It's had a moment for about two years now. And that's a traditional Indian spice and it's been used in Indian food forever. But when mm-hmm. white people started cooking with turmeric, famous white chefs, cookbook authors, then it became all the rage. It took a white person using an ethnic product for it to be a big deal. That's white supremacy. Um, and this is referring to Saman Nosrat. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, but she is um, in the Netflix doc, um, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And she's got that great mm-hmm. cookbook, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And she talked mm-hmm. about um, her success. And it says her success isn't only about who she is inherently, but her ability to bridge worlds, to speak about and make comprehensible to the mainstream, the assumed differences of minorities and the places and culture they come from. Mm-hmm. To paraphrase, Postcolonial theorist Gayatri Spivak, it's indicative of the way in which minorities must contort themselves to ever have any power. They have mm. to manifest it in ways recognizable to those who hold it. 
So going back to you're so articulate, I now have a value that you see as valuable. Right. Right. And it's devastating, honestly. Like, it is devastating. And again, that goes back to the steeping of white supremacy and what the world order is. Like, you're you're taught that these things are the best things. And if you speak this way, it's the best way. And if you do these things, that's the best thing. And, and white supremacy, the highest values are being right and being the best. And so everybody else has to be inferior to you. So no matter what your economic bracket is or what you've grown up in, um, you know, you're looking for ways to be superior to others because that's what is taught rather than a collaborative community where, hey, we're all equal here. We all have a different voice to bring to the table. We all have different attributes that God gave us that are important to our life and to our community. You're taught to compete and to fight and to strive and to be the best. And it's devastating on communities and specifically deeply impacts communities of color. And it's not okay. There's this excellent article I love. I refer to it very often. And again, we'll link to this in the show notes, but it's called Explaining White Privilege to a a broke white person by Gina Crossley Kokoran. And I love this girl. I mean, she's so great. And I just want to read you a little brief part of it because I know there's some people listening thinking to themselves like, I mean, I hear you on the overt and the covert, um, you know, ideas of supremacy. Sure. I can see tokenism and how that might've played out in my church or in my workplace mm-hmm. or even in my own life. Like there's probably some things you could personally identify. And then there are other people who are thinking, lady, like privilege, are you joking? Like there's nothing about me that has ever been privileged. Like you don't understand how hard I've worked, which that's why bootstrap mentality is listed on the covert supremacy side is because mm-hmm. very often we think, you know, well, I come from nothing. If you just make good decisions too, like you can have a life that, you know, is, is like mine, or you can also make decisions to change your life, which is how we get to a place where we watch a person who gets killed by the police in a way that we know is not right. And then very often what you hear people say is, well, let's just wait till all the details come. Oh, or we don't know the whole picture. We didn't oh, see man. what happened. We don't know what he did. We don't know. And that's, that's where it stems from. So you got to remember that you get to that place of saying, well, let's just wait for all the details because you didn't address all these things that came prior. And so I love this article and I want to read you a little piece of it. It says, years ago, Ago, some feminist on the internet told me I was privileged. The what? I said, she uses another word, so just beware. I came <laughs> from the kind of poor that people didn't don't want to believe still exists in this country. Have you ever spent a frigid North Illinois, Northern Illinois winter without heat or running water? I have. At 12 years old, were you making ramen noodles in a coffee maker with water you fetched from a public bathroom? I was. Have you ever lived in a camper year round and used a random relative's apartment as your mailing address? We did. Did you attend so many different elementary schools that you can only remember a quarter of their names. Welcome to my childhood. So when that feminist told me that I had white privilege, I told her that my white skin didn't do jack to prevent me from experiencing poverty. Then like any good educated feminist would, she directed me to Peggy McIntosh's now famous 1988 piece, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. After one reads McIntosh's powerful essay, it's impossible to to deny that being born with white skin in America affords people certain unearned privileges in life that people of other skin color simply are not afforded. For example, I can turn on the television or open to the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. When I am told about our national heritage or about civilization, I am shown that people 
of my color made it what it is. If a traffic cop pulls me over or if the IRS audits my tax return, I can be certain I haven't been singled out because of my race. I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. If you read the rest of the list, you can see how white people and people of color experience the world in very different ways. But listen, this is not said to make white people feel guilty about their privilege. It's not your fault that you were born with white skin and experience these privileges. But whether you realize it or not, you do benefit benefit from it. And it is your fault if you don't maintain awareness of that fact. And so I love it. And she goes on to talk about, you know, things like citizenship affording us privilege, things like our economic class affording us privilege. You know, she goes on and on and lists a bunch of great things. And I just think it's important to talk about that because we forget <clears throat> what other people are going through. And we can get so locked down in our life. We can get so locked down in the pursuit of our personal passions and in the pursuit of the things that we think are good and and things that will make us the best or things that will make us better or give us the life that we want more and more and more that we forget that out there people are living a real life that is harder and difficult and we are immune to their challenges. And we have to acknowledge that that fact is true. And when we acknowledge that that fact is true, we can then begin to understand and to change and to grow and cultivate a rich, diverse world that is more collaborative and more welcoming and more hospitable, where we are not the best and where we are not superior because whites are not going to make America great again. Okay? That's not how this works. The whites won't make America great again. Like that is not what is going to happen here. The only thing that's going to happen is that this beautiful sense of diversity and rich goodness and grace that God gave us in the human race, when we honor that, and when we begin to lift it up and lift up all people as made in the image of God and worthy of our respect and of our honor, then that is when we really start to see the kingdom of heaven manifesting on this earth. And it will take each of us, (laughs) each of us doing our part. (laughs) And we're not saying that we're going to get it right 100% of the time. We're saying that we're going to do the Come work. On. We're not going to yes. we're not going to ace this test every day, but may we move in the direction of righteousness and holiness and peace and justice yes. and connection. Yes. And just before we end today, I wanted to share with you guys. I I do a lot of workshops on race and really helping people understand privilege and <clears throat> how to walk out of that, and I want to offer you just a very quick Um, It won't be quick when you do it, but just a very quick overview of what this looks like. So um, the first place to start is with lamenting. And so Mm -hmm. there are so many Psalms of lament in scripture. In fact, two thirds of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. So they are Psalms of grief. They are Psalms of mourning. And there is a place in our faith for this type of mourning. And whether you are mourning because you are a person of color and this week has just been hell on wheels for you, or you are a white person mourning because you identify with the people of color that are in your life and are devastated on their behalf, or you are brand new to this, a lament is a great place to start. And if grief makes you uncomfortable, that is why you have to sit in it. If you are looking for more victory psalms and how to make yourself feel better, that's not the route to go today. Today is the day to lament. Today is the day to mourn. And so Psalm 13 is a great place to start. And again, you can Google them. Two-thirds of the psalms are psalms of lament. I love Psalm 13 and Psalm 78. Those are two of my favorites. And then after lamenting, there is a psalm that will help you repent. You know, Psalm 51 is a great one. It's a good time to sit with grief and to sit with supremacy. And if you're a white person, ask God, how has this world indoctrinated me? How have I been steeped in the tea of supremacy, God? And how would you have me change? I'm sorry, Lord, help me to walk in your way. And if you are a person of color, then ask God, how can you defy 
the way supremacy may have made you feel inferior, the way that supremacy may have hurt you, the way that it is it grieves your heart and has hurt and wounded your family, both personally and systemically. What does that look like for you? And ask God to help you. And then a prayer to pray from the end of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So you're giving God permission to search you and know your heart, which he already does. But for him to highlight it to you is how we begin to change and ask him to point out anything in you that offends him because racism even the subtle kind offends god it's offensive because it is robbing the image of god in people and mm-hmm. that is not what god put you here to do so mm-hmm. pray that prayer and then a vision to work to believe and work for and we talked about this on our um, podcast justice is not a trend so you can go back and listen to that one again but you can um, read first corinthians 12 and get an idea of what it looks like for us to begin to value the whole body even parts that we think are dispensable parts that we think deserve less honor god commands us through the apostle paul to give the parts of the body that we think are less honorable more honor more honor, more honor. So how do we ask the Holy Spirit to fill us with love for the people that we disregard or even hate? How can we replace that hatred with love? And so that's just a quick overview um, of some steps that you can take today that would help you just begin to understand how supremacy is affecting you, impacting you, indoctrinating you, hurting you, and how you can move forward. Well said. And we know this was heavy today, listeners, so we thank you for journeying with us. We're here for you. We're all walking this together. This was not a, Mm -hmm. hey, you're not doing it right. This was a, hey, let's learn together. So thank you. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, listeners, remember to subscribe and comment. It helps others to find the show. To learn more about Tiffany's writing, speaking, or books, visit tiffanybloom.com. To learn more about Ashley's writing, speaking, or books, visit ashabercrombie.org. See you next week.